0: Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic
1: that makes you look or feel good with long-form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday, and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. So, Jake, we're here for episode two of The Business of in Three. Is it three now? Yes. Wow, it's three. It is three. three. I can't count to three. There you go. (laughs) Um, And we're joined today by the lovely Dr. Simone Dorian
0: from Melbourne or Victoria in Australia. Thanks for joining us.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Hi, guys.
0: Good morning. Um, Simone, why don't you tell the listeners all about yourself? Because we know, we know you and you're famous here and you're an international speaker, but we, we have lots of you know junior injectors and people from different parts of the world that may not have come across your work. So sell yourself. Tell them everything.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I am a cosmetic physician. Uh, my background uh, it was from anaesthetics uh, back at the Alfred, and I spent a, a few years there did not enjoy that at all and decided that I really had to find something that was more tenable. Um, I went across to Cabrini and, and uh, Epworth and Locum as a ICU reg and um, emergency registrar for a couple of years thinking, "What you know, what am I going to do? And ended up doing general practice. Um, I used to think, God, you know, if you catch me in a suburban house in a corner <laughs> somewhere, kill me. But actually it turned <laughs> out to be just brilliant and I loved it. But at the same time, I had met a plastic surgeon um, over at Cabrini, which is a large private hospital, probably one of our largest private hospitals in Australia, and I was missing a lot of the procedures from anaesthetics and Mm -hmm. emergency, and he said, why don't you come and see what we do at Arrays, and where I first began my career in anaesthetics was Arrays with Ian Carlisle, who was a very kind plastic surgeon that mentored me through my early and ongoing years. And um, he had set up one of the very first clinics in Australia to complement his surgical career. So he'd set up a skin-only treatment um, place called Arrays in Malvern, and that was just around the corner from the hospital. One of the first people to start to pre-treat skin prior to uh, plastic surgery and prior to facelifts to improve quality of skin. So when I first started there, um, we were really just, there was lots of lasers. We were just sort of doing Botox for wrinkles and and frowns and the like, Um, none of the sort of modulation that we're able to do now. And we were kind of chasing, you know, chasing um, nasolabial folds and (laughs) and occasionally plumping lips at the time and, you know, putting some new fillers such as sub-Q up through the the mouth into the the front of the cheek. We've uh, discussed that before, haven't we? Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Didn't go too well, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Well... I never had any disasters, but you know, I think there are there are more hygienic ways of, of placing implants. That's for sure.
0: So, what year was roughly this when you first got into this it? This was
2: in two thousand and four. So, I um, I was very timid, even though I'd done a lot of procedures. This um, this was new to me and and very. Um, you know, when you're doing a procedure in in um, in anaesthetics or ICU and emergency, you've got a lot of landmarks and a lot of very strict guidance about what you're doing, and you learn from hands-on from people who show you how to do it, and you get a lot of feedback. You know, you you get a flash or you get you know a pulsation, you get a graph on a on a monitor. But this seemed quite. You know, there weren't any rules. There weren't. There wasn't a lot of anatomy taught particularly. Um, so I was very ginger. So I actually shadowed Ian for for half a day a week for a year before I dared touch a patient.
0: Yeah, very right. sensible. I think.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, it's a it's a stark contrast to a lot of the injectors now who come out who've got lots of confidence and and not a lot of skill or experience yet who don't seem to have that fear factor. So, you know, that's yeah. that's an interesting point. I know we're talking about business today, but that it is an interesting point that that uh, that stark contrast between what's happening today and, and yeah. sort of where. You know, pioneers like yourself potentially started out.
0: Yeah. And so so relating this to your business, so you started with Mm. someone and then- So I started
2: with Ian and I actually stayed with Ian for 18 years. 18 years, right. Yeah. I'm a loyal person, (laughs) but he was a great mentor and he was very old fashioned in a lot of ways. And I think that was a really nice way to begin my business. He had, he also, I suppose, mentored me in a lot of ways about you know, what my ethos would be in, biz- in business. And it was first and foremost that I'm a doctor and these are my patients. They're not my clients. Um, and I know you've had conversations that. about that on your podcast. Yeah. So I kind of sit with, with Jake on that one, but then sometimes, you know, I have to remind myself that I, it's, it's probably easier to get annoyed with patients than it is with clients because mm. clients brings in that re- memory that these are the people who are paying you and, yeah. and supporting your life. So, you know, but they are a mix of both, I suppose. But, yeah. um, so he always believed that we were, you know, first do no harm and, and patient safety is the first thing, and that people will come when, you know, word of mouth sort of gets out. And we never, ever advertised at a race, and I've never, ever advertised, and it's purely been word of mouth. And in that way, it's great because you get the patients that you deserve and that like you and you like them. They sort of weed themselves out pretty quickly.
1: Yeah. Agree so it's more. been a
2: very organic growth. You know, yeah. we, we've never sort of spent a lot on on um, pushing our wares or trying to sell anything. Yeah. It's always been about patient education, yeah. and and the rest just happens organically somehow. Luckily, yeah, because yeah. Yeah. I'm not a business person,
3: yeah. that's for sure. <laughs> and, and, and sort of, what yeah.
1: were your like first thoughts or? feelings when you started seeing these procedures being done? I mean, I know that it's it's quite a, a culture shock or it's quite a, you know, yeah. a, an adjustment period and and sort of just curious to get into your mindset of, of what that process was like of finding out about these treatments. Yeah.
3: It was
2: excitement yeah. for me because I'd been missing these procedures and, you know, I'm also really artistic. So I used to paint and sculpt, yep. you know, back when we had time before, you know, kids and life and medicine took over and it was the most perfect blend of both of them. I couldn't believe my luck to have stumbled upon this or almost seemed to have jumped into my lap, which, you know, sometimes you're lucky enough for that to happen. So it was the perfect blend for me here. Yeah.
1: yeah. And um, personal question, had you had any of these treatments done before you decided to start administering them yourself? And, and if so, like what, were your ex- what was your experience like?
2: I'd had Botox before, yep. I'd, before I'd done it. So I was 30 when I had my first dose of Botox. Yeah. Um, so it's quite a young starter, I guess, from that point of view. And um, I'd had the person who had done that for me had offered to train me in it, but I didn't feel a sense of connection or trust, particularly for that person. um And then I'd sort of thought about it, thought no, you know, that sounds a little bit dodgy. I'd, I'm just not. That's, you know, it doesn't seem that interesting to me, but then when I met Ian and I went into a race to see what they were doing, it was a, a much more sort of holistic approach and I could really see the value in that. Um, yeah. And so it was probably his approach and, and, um, and holisticness of it and the the medical basis of it that uh, attracted me to start to think about it. Yeah.
0: Was it, I mean, I'm sure you, you had a good bedside manner, you know, prior to all of this, but Presumably, Do that. You know
2: what? I don't think I had a nice bedside manager. Oh, I didn't. had Kids that kind of softened
3: me off.
0: <laughs> okay, I was going to say already yeah. from your first, you know, experience of Botox, you, you kind yeah. of saw how it maybe shouldn't be done, or, or maybe how you would mm. change how you speak to patients and so on. And then, you know, your your old mentor kind of, you know, grew that. I guess. Yeah.
2: Yeah. He, I mean, Ian has just been known, you know, th- through Melbourne for being just a really beautiful doctor. Mm-hmm. And, and he's like a giant teddy bear. People just love him, you know. So I think that that's always been, you know, it's been a lovely thing to watch. And, you know, he has patients. It's a different model of practicing medicine. Our generation is much more, um, you know, we, we place some responsibility on the patient and, and we work together to come to, you know, an education and an agreement about what treatment will be. But um, Ian's patients, when I first started, it was a very sort of paternalistic um, approach to medicine. So they would come in and he'd have a look and tell them what they needed and they would say, Yes, doctor, and, and they would have it and look <laughs> amazing. But my patients aren't quite so compliant. I
1: think. Yeah. That's an interesting phenomenon, yeah. isn't it? How the sort of yeah. relationship between practitioner and patient has evolved over time to, well, from what, mm-hmm. what you've stated, um, mm-hmm. being happy to listen to the recommendations of, of the trained professional. Whereas now everyone's got a supercomputer in their pocket. And um, they're doing research and educating themselves. Um, and so, some of them, some of them, some people are really good and knowledgeable and, and sensible. Yeah. And there's other people that will just grab a certain piece of information without any sort of understanding of the background or the context or the anatomy, or so on. And then they can actually make your life really difficult as a, as a, as a practitioner.
0: Yeah, especially detangling stuff that they come across on Instagram. Yeah. It, it look, it's great that they they have a an understanding of or, or an awareness of something, yeah. but. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, yeah. We just had a chat with Sebastian Cotofana, and we were talking about that dynamic of education through social media. It's a bit of a slippery slope.
2: Yeah. Oh, it's hard to manage, isn't it? Because often you feel you're, you're sort of, even though we're highly educated, and continue to, you know, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. Yeah. So you continually, you know, feel obliged to to update and keep up to date, but. You know, you can feel out of control with all the Instagram feeds yeah. coming in and there's so many new devices and, and machines and everything looks so easy on Instagram and they come to you and then, you know, you haven't offered what other people have offered and, and you know, they've seen it work elsewhere and, mm. you know, you, you have to be careful not to sort of feel overwhelmed or incompetent mm. because you can't manage to keep up with it all, I think.
3: Yeah, It's, it's a hard
2: one. Do you find that, Jake? Or? Oh,
0: 100%. And, um... You know, just lowering the expectation is, is is a good starting point We're with any patient. But forget when they come in asking for something specific. I um, wanted yeah. to ask you. So, so you're with Ian for a long time, but then at mm. some point you you jumped ship and went solo. So yeah. why did you so do that? Quite
2: quite late. So I'd been I'd I'd had a, a, a clinic probably for the past oh, five or six years, and it was getting busier and busier. So I was splitting my time, you know, it, it was very proportional. I didn't just jump ship all of a sudden. Um, I'd got divorced and wanted to make sure that I did have a constant income stream mm-hmm. and a race had, you know, I had really loyal clients. I had a lot of, um, of reluctance and kind of guilt about, you know, perhaps ever potentially leaving there. Um, so I'd had this other clinic my own clinic running, and it was a very different demographic, a different location in Melbourne. Um, you know, the people from sort of Malvern or South Yarra, you know, almost never cross nepean Highway, let alone come down towards the beach, you know, something bad could happen. And um, so it's a very separate kind of demographic. But I got busier and busier in my own clinic, and, and um, I, I, each year I would perhaps drop one day at a raise and then increase one day um, in my private clinic. And then COVID hit and we were shut down for a really long time. And then Melbourne locked down, it seemed like for 10 years, but mm. I think it was, you know, 211 days, but not counting. Yep. And, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it it made me reflect on a lot of things and what was important to me. And what what was working for me was being with my kids and being nearby home, being able to pick them up and spend time with them. And also just a sense of control. I wanted to control my hours, I wanted to control the kind of equipment I used, you know, I wanted to be able to have the syringes I wanted, the saline I wanted at hand, if something wasn't ordered, it was my fault, no one else's fault. And I, you know, it was a control factor, actually.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm totally with you there. Yeah. I mean, you know, David and I used to work together. That's how we met. Yeah. And yeah. I didn't do 18 years with him. I did, what, two or three? Yeah, something like and, that. And, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a big thing to sort of say yeah. to someone who you've worked with for a while, oh. Oh, I'm going to do my own thing now. But but, but I, I get it. That it The
3: conversation
2: was so hard. Yeah, yeah. but, you know, yeah. it wasn't
0: because I wasn't, Un, uh, sorry, I wasn't unhappy. No. I just I needed more control. I needed to bit, be yeah. a bit more flexible. Do do my own thing yeah. rather than in the constraints of someone else's business. And mm. you know, even David yeah. didn't have control of that. It, it was what yeah. the, the chain said. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah.
1: So what you've described is not unusual, where people will, will start uh, at a practice, whether it be with a plastic surgeon or in a chain clinic or, or, or part of some sort of uh, larger business, and they, and they're, uh, they are they work there, and then they get to a point where they decide they wanna go off and do their own thing. And Mm. that's always scary because you've been under the protection of someone Mm. else. Um, You haven't had to put any of your own money in. you haven't had to think about anything outside of Mm -hmm. the care of your own patients. And one of the Mm -hmm. factors I think potentially would be on your mind is, well, where are my patients going to come from? I, I don't advertise. I, I've sort of mm. attracted patients through being in this practice and it was already successful before I got there and it's obviously been successful while I have been there. Um, mm. So where did those initial patients come from? Um, was Did you have an agreement? Friends. Right, okay.
2: No, friends and friends are friends. Right. And one person told two people, he told three people and it just built really quickly. Um, it's slow at the beginning, yeah. but then, you know, as it, as it grows, you know, I used to just do nights. Yeah. You know, one or two nights a week for a couple of hours, yeah. and it just slowly grew like that over a period of years. Um, you know, I think it, it, it is, you know, slower than an exponential thing because of word of mouth.
3: Yeah,
1: and so how did you manage? And that's
2: good. Yeah, absolutely. Because it allows it, it allows you to kind of, you know, you're not outlaying enormous sums of money initially because you're not needing to buy a hell of a lot of stuff. It, you know, this I I don't have devices. I made a decision early on to keep my life simple. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, I'd had enough complications in life prior yeah. to this, so for me, it's about keeping things simple and, and honest and doing the best I can do. Um, but really, what we do doesn't take a lot. You know, it takes products, it takes you know a clean environment, it takes um, it takes needles, syringes, mm-hmm. you. But you know, you don't require. A huge, huge, huge um, investment, and you can gradually grow it as you go. Yeah, but um, yeah. So people, people just sent people, and yeah. um, and initially I used to try and make, they'd ring me or text me, and then I'd text them back, and it back and forth, and then it gets <laughs> you probably know, how out of hand does that get?
0: Yeah, the text tennis, <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. It drives you crazy. So then I had to start to automate things to make my life easier.
0: Yeah.
1: And how did you sort of have that conversation with Ian and also those boundaries between patients that had been seeing you at a raise yeah. and then wanting to potentially come and see you at your private practice and having that delineation? That, yeah. yeah. How did that work? Because that is a point of contention with a lot it was of
2: injectors. Tricky. Yeah. yeah. It was really tricky because you know I owe a lot to Ian. Um, so I'd talked to my sister. I'd made a decision early on that when I started my own clinic, I would not discuss it with the race patients. Yep. Um, so, and I had a website, but you know, it wasn't, I wasn't advertising or anything yep. like that. So it really, it, it's, it basically was, um, yeah, I had a, I hadn't discussed it with any patients um, at the time when I was really considering just stopping at a race. Then I rang my sister who has a long history in in HR and I talked to her about, you know, how do you, what is a good way to end end a business relationship and and maintain a a relationship ongoing? Um, And she said, well, her advice was great actually. She said the way you leave a relationship says more about you Mm -hmm. um, than the way you start it Mm -hmm. or the way you conduct yourself in it. And so it was really important to me to leave on a good foot. So, I made an appointment with Ian to discuss it, and and it was so hard. I was so nervous, um, you know. I was so worried he'd be upset, and but he was absolutely fine and completely understood, and, and was grateful for the eighteen years that we'd, yeah. you know, that we'd been together at Arrays and and you know, and just. As usual, his usual lovely self and very supportive and yeah. and you know, he understood that family obligations, you know, needed to come before yeah. business obligations and that this was the right thing for me at the time.
0: Yeah, that's really nice. We're still yeah. friends, aren't we? Yeah,
1: yeah, we are. Well I, I think yeah. that um, I think this is potentially I could be uh, could this could be a little bit ages to say, but I think there is a little bit of a, a generational challenge with with younger people who aren't comfortable having those face to face conversations, which potentially could be confrontational. They're not used to communicating. Oh,
2: I wasn't either.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. But at least, I guess you've had the, yeah. you know the benefit of growing up in a slightly different era where you know mm. not all communication was via Instagram or text message or WhatsApp or mm. whatever it is that you use. And so yeah. I think that we do have a point now where people. I think most people are inherently good and I think that most people want to do the right thing but I think that there is this challenge with people not being comfortable with confrontational and confrontation doesn't always need to be, need to be um, negative. Confrontation just means you know, you're know you discussing something you might not be entirely comfortable with. It's outside of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Um, there could be some... You know, you're not sure how it's going to go. So all these fears around not being comfortable having these conversations I think can sometimes lead to people doing things that are perceived to be dodgy. They don't have that conversation. They potentially lie about what their next move mm. is. They're not comfortable being honest because they're not they're not experienced in, in having these sorts mm. of conversations. And I think that potentially can take something that was you know, per- perfectly reasonable. You want to move on and do your own thing as an employer mm. of many years. I, I know that people aren't going to be with me forever. Um, this yeah. is potentially a stepping stone in their career. They might want to go off and do bigger and better things or try something on their own. And, and that's completely fine. But I do think that sometimes people run afoul in this in, when they're exiting a business and not because they set out to do the wrong thing. It's just because they're not comfortable mm. having these conversations. And i found you know even if I'm disappointed someone's leaving, the fact that they've come to me, they've had a face-to-face conversation, they've made their intentions clear, We've got a an agreed um, sort of exit strategy in terms of when you're going to leave, how are we going to handle patients. Um, you know what's what's acceptable, what's not, and then you can go on and, and have a relationship into the future. But I think it is an issue, this communication issue. I think does plague a lot of people,
0: and it sometimes turns some relationships quite sour. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's mm-hmm. actually funny. We were mentioning text messaging just a minute ago, Simone. When patients often do this, they'll text you with a complication. Uh, Or a question Mm. about an outcome. And I think the best thing to do is nip that under the bud and say, Mm -hmm. come and see me. Do this in mm -hmm. person. I need to see it. We need to have a proper conversation. Because if you don't, you go back and forth, back and forth. It becomes Uh, vicious. And and what always ends up is they don't come. And they don't come back because, you know, they feel like you, you haven't looked after them. But yeah. you can't do certain things through text. It's got to be an in-person. No, I true. totally agree with what you said about I mean, um, Would you
2: text someone and break up with them? But, I mean, Some people do. Would,
3: but
2: <laughs> not in my generation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it is a relationship that you have when you're working with or for someone. And, no, yeah. you know, I think... It's, it's a hard thing, but you can also text and say, look, I need to have a conversation yeah. and then go in and yep. and just forewarned is forearmed and that can allow them to, you know, to, to get themselves yep. ready and, and um, you know, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's good advice. So, I know today we're going to be focusing mainly on how to potentially exit a business and what I mean by mm. that is that um, a lot of professionals, whether they be solicitors, doctors, whatever, Um, their practice generally revolves around them. They've built up a a practice over, you know, 10, 20, however many years it is. And then they decide, um, at some point the realization dawns upon them that, Hey, um, I'm going to do something after this life of injecting or being a lawyer or whatever it is. And they come to this point where they realize, actually I am the business. Like, what is it that I'm actually going to be looking to sell? Because without me, there are no patients. There is no goodwill um, there's no brand because everything revolves around you. And I think that we'll get into that, but Mm -hmm. before we sort of go down that path and the potential options and the way you might sort of, what's the word you sort of pivot yourself into moving into a different direction with, Mm. with the end goal of having something that you can sell or move on from the future. But I just want to get an understanding Mm. of, you know, so you set up your business, you said that you were doing it, you know. You were sort of moonlighting, doing a, a few days here or there, or only nights, and you set, kept your setup mm. quite small. But in terms of how yeah. you sort of planned this out, was it sort of all sort of just haphazard and organic, and it just sort of all fell into place, and, and it's sort of just been
2: embarrassingly, yeah. That's okay. That, that's how a lot of businesses <laughs> start.
1: But you know, what was there any planning in place? What were some of the challenges that you had around getting this set up? <laughs>
2: So um, in terms of planning, I, I needed to make sure that I was able to do it. Yeah. So, you know, obviously looking at what permits are needed. Yeah. Um, but actually when you're a doctor in, in Australia, a lot is um, revolves around you and you do have a lot of rights to set up medical practices. So um, the, it, it wasn't a matter of um, I didn't actually need a permit particularly to set up the clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, I because I'm working on my own, you know, I can operate just under, um, you know, I can control the S4 medications under my own um, sort of jurisdiction, so that's all fine, Um, and just making sure that everything was legal and also ensuring that my medical defence knew that I was practising from a different address, Mm -hmm. that was important to do, Um, and then updating, you know, business insurance and making sure that I had public liability and that kind of stuff. So just that due diligence, um, boring kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I also got a bookkeeper because I could not keep up with um, doing my own bath statements. And it just got a lot more fiddly and complicated and there were better ways to spend my time. Yep. So I did that. Um, and I've got an online um, booking and, and medical record system working that saved me an enormous amount of text to and fro and, yep. and hours and allowed me to automate most things like consent forms, um, information, um, and store things safely as well so that it wasn't floating around on my phone or yep. Um, you know, on paper somewhere. At a race, we worked with paper and they still do work with paper files. So, you know, I was determined I was not going to have a piece of paper involved at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah.
0: Which booking system did you go with out of interest?
2: Oh, I I ended up using um, a booking system that worked really well for me as a patient at a um, OT's um, service. So I use Clinico, which is an Australian one designed for allied health. But the patient interface end is fantastic. Patients absolutely love it. From my point of view, it's not ideal because it, from my back end, um, in some aspects and in other aspects, it's amazing. So I'd like it to have more medical um, focus, where a past history and, and summaries of each, you know, each um, diagnosis that you've made pop up instantly every time you, you come to that patient. It's not quite so well organized as that. But it does have a lot of great aspects when used um, in coalition with my iPad Pro. It means I can load on patient forms and I can draw all over them and, and just click save and, it's clicked and it saves right on their patient template and form. Um, everything's sort of pre-filled in and I can tick boxes and it gives me a lot of flexibility and, and speed when you're working on your own as well. So that's yeah. been good.
0: That should be mm. your next project. Yeah, design, okay.
2: yeah, no, a booking. We and, were talking oh about gosh. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a lot, there's a
0: lot of
1: systems coming onto the market, and I think I think mm. it is it is slowly getting better. But I know absolutely nothing mm. about uh, software <laughs> like that. So yeah, true. Yeah, so um, so you said you didn't do any marketing. You sort of let no. the the power of um, organic referrals um, kickstart yeah. your your solo career. So yeah. what sort of timeline were you looking at? And can you just sort of give us an idea about what that that process was like in terms of how it built up because yep. I'm sure there's a lot of injectors listening to this who are either just yeah. starting or they've started up recently um, yeah. and that, that sort of working out how you're it, going to find patients. It's a slow yeah. build.
2: So, yeah, I, I didn't want the wrong kind of patients yep. and I didn't really want to attract patients um, that wanted to find um like a chain, a chain clinic attitude. I didn't. I, they want. I needed patients that wanted to see me, particularly, and that were interested in a natural approach in, mm-hmm. an, in a um, in you know a naturally proportioned aesthetic that could afford treatments without searching for bargain basement prices. I didn't yep. want to have to bother with that. Yep. Um, you know, I knew that my skill was high, so and that my education was ongoing, so that you know I had a valuable service to offer them, and, and it was important for me to value that and mm-hmm. not to put myself you know, in the bottom end of the market or in yep. the middle end of the market, but to decide, well, if people who are my equivalent are charging this, then I'm going to charge that. And and it took a lot to kind of get my head around not being embarrassed to charge yep. money for a service yeah. coming from general practice. Of course. You know, you always feel guilty about charging patients for treatment somehow yep. as a doctor. Yeah. Um, and, and realizing this is a luxury procedure um, and it's not medically necessary and that I'm offering something that other people can pay a third of what I charged and go and have it anywhere. Um, but they actually want my skill and expertise and that I have to start to value that. That was a big step.
1: Yeah. And so yeah. what What sort of, I mean, if we can talk specifics a little bit, like what sort of yeah. time frame were you looking at? Be- I mean, so you know, I don't know what you'd consider a, a full day. I guess it depends on what type of treatments you're doing. But let's say a full mm-hmm. day might look like six to eight patients. If you're sort of doing thorough consultations, which I, mean, I assume that you are, mm. you know, you take all the right, asept, you know, all right aseptic technique, writing yeah. your clinical notes thoroughly, all of your photography, yeah. all that sort of stuff. What did a full yeah. day look like for you? And then what was that like? So if you can just sort of say like, what was your first six months like? What were you like at 12 yeah. months? And then when did it get to a point yeah. where, okay, I'm full. I don't need any more patients. I'm quite happy yeah. with with my returning. I've got my people now and I'm not, I'm yeah. quite satisfied. So can you just, cause I know a lot of people yeah. are thinking like what, you know, we're sort of talking in general terms, but I think specifics would help yeah. a lot Should of people I do this or that, Yeah, that are on that mental journey. Can I
2: afford to do it? Yeah. yeah. So I thought it was safer for me to, um, to go from sort of stand, if you, if you're me in my original clinic standing yep. on a lily pad and then there's another lily pad yep. I wanted to get to and I put one toe on it and did one day. And yep. then, another toe on it and I gradually shifted my weight yep. from, um, you know, a business where I was assured of getting an income across and spending more and more time across. So I never actually did that blunt, just yep. stop until I was actually working. You know, when I, when I left a raise, I was working four days a week for myself and one day a week for them.
3: Yeah. Yep.
2: So it was really a gradual transition because that was safer for me.
3: Yep. But
2: I think, you know, it is it's a slow increment at the beginning and then it gets faster and faster because more people are coming and more people are talking. Yep. And um and so it, it grows very rapidly and and still it grows rapidly even when you don't have room. There's still new referrals all the time because there's this volume out there now of people that are seeing you yep. talking. So I would say it probably took me it would be I imagine it would have if I've just jumped it would have been a really different story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would have been I mean, now I work, originally at a race, where we there were 15-minute appointments. Yep. It was quick, you know, in and out, quick Botox, yep. um, half an hour for fillers. But that entailed the patient either booking a Botox appointment or a filler appointment. Yep. Um, that was tricky because patients don't necessarily know mm-hmm. what they need. They might yep. think they know what they need, but they don't always. So yep. I have half an hour for everyone here. Um, new patients at most I'll do a little bit of Botox on, they'll come back for fillers. So mm-hmm. a day for me is usually nine till three sort of school hours yep. and a longer day, every, every sort of Thursday I'll work later. So a usual day I'll see 12 patients okay. and, um, a bigger day I'll see, you know, in up to 20 or so, wow. but they're half hour appointments. So I've got time. Yep. Um, and, you know, it's not a race. It took them a few years to get older. It'll take us a, a few months to get on top of it. So yeah. We kind of did it like that.
1: And so how long did it take you to build up to that point, roughly?
2: Well, I, uh, probably a few years.
1: A few years, yeah. And yeah, you, you and you were exper- a few years. And you, how long ago did you set up your practice? So we've got like less than five years, about right?
2: five years ago. Right. Yeah, about five years ago. So you started yeah. a
1: practice from scratch doing – Limited time in the clinic, slowly transitioning yourself across.
3: You're an injector
1: with 18 years experience, and it still took you three years. And so this this is a conversation I have with a lot of injectors who expect instant success. If I'm not yeah. successful in the six months, then I'm hopeless, I'm a failure, I must be doing something yeah. wrong. And it's, it's good to hear that from someone as experienced as you, is that three years, even though you had 18 years of experience behind you, you did the right thing, you didn't take patients from your existing practice, you basically started from scratch, but you had all these clinical skills. And yeah. so three years... Years. I always say around two years. If, and I used to say to my injectors in the chain clinics because mm. we had a lot of patients coming in for other services like lazy hair removal and skin treatments and buying retail and all that kind of stuff. So your patient flow was mm. high, so that didn't take quite as long. But I've always said two years is probably yeah. a, a time well, that you should have in your mind to be able to, mm. if you're doing all the right things, to be able to have consistently full days. Um, yeah. And I just think we, yeah. we suffer with that sort of impetuous nature these days is that people mm. just want that that instant instant full calendar and it's just not going to happen. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. I've I've worked with. But if you
2: can keep your overhead low, overheads low then, I think that that really helps because you're not having to, you know, I mean now I can pre-purchase a year's worth of food. That's fine and get a great price. But in the older, you know, earlier on, I couldn't. I would have to just buy as I went. And that was fine because, it, you know, it meant that when we shut down for COVID, I didn't have a huge, you know, covered full of stock that was going to go out of date. Um, I didn't have to insure a hell of a lot of stock. Mm-hmm. Um it you know, I think organic in business is you know, I I don't know, I don't have a very good I'm not a business person, mm-hmm. but it's worked for me. It's kept me a bit safer than otherwise the disasters I could have created
3: probably. Yeah. I
1: think <laughs> a, I think a lot of business comes down to just common sense. And I think that mm. you don't need to have an MBA, you don't need to be able to sort of be a wizard at, at sort of analysing P&L statements and, 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 and sort of balance sheets, not like all those sort of technical I sides of business. found out what
2: p was recently. Right, there you go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's about, yeah, common sense, being measured, yeah. um, being patient, um, being thorough, all those kinds of things mm. are, are sort of almost more important. And your people skills. And being able yeah, to sort of read that's between the, the lines, one. yeah, absolutely. So, what yeah. are some of the things that have worked really well for you? We'll get onto failures in a minute, but I'm just sort of curious mm. as to, to what what are some of the, the, the little gems or or golden nuggets of of sort of knowledge and successes that you think you could to share with the people listening?
2: Well, I think get everything online, online booking, and yep. put some responsibility across to the patients. Um, I don't have a, a secretary that's here with me. I've got a remote secretary, mm-hmm. so she'll field calls for patients who. You can't find the information on my website or on my Instagram or on the reams of information that is out there. Mm-hmm. But she'll fill calls and, and she'll book them in by hand if she has to. Because yep. um, there's some oldies that just like it that way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think just start as you mean to finish it would be, you know, I, I think I should have started off online. At the beginning for online bookings and mm-hmm. and trying to automate everything to get those consents all signed rather than having pieces of paper floating around and mm-hmm. you know it's great now it just takes care of itself yeah. um, and I think but the number one is just be you know be be ethical mm-hmm. and treat people as you would want your mum or yourself treated by a doctor or by a nurse mm-hmm. um, we're not. You know, we're not there to focus on the money we're there to focus on the, on the aesthetic outcome and the emotional outcome for the patient yep. and when they know that they sent, you know patients sense it like that. Yep. they know if you're there to try to sell them something or not. you know offering that saying no is a, is a great thing yep. um, When you say no to a patient, I don't think that that's going to work for you um, or I don't think that's the best option or you just look ridiculous. Um, I'm not going to do that. You, I can offer you someone else to to have another consult with. Mm-hmm. But you know that's a that's a really powerful thing. Patients get excited and and tell their friends. No, she actually said no. I didn't need that. And and that's um being being known for being ethical is a, a great start yeah. because in this industry now it feels very unethical. Um, mm-hmm. It feels really uncontrolled in Australia. Yeah, and it's a real difference if you can offer that.
0: Yeah. I couldn't agree yeah. more. I think your practice sounds very similar to, to how I sort of try and work. How, how does it work yeah. with the remote secretary? How, how do you communicate? What does she do? How do patients get linked up with her, etc.?
2: So on the website and on, um, on the booking site, there's you know little drop-downs that tell them if they have trouble booking, then just call Lee on this number. Um, and same on the website. So there's always an offer for a human contact you know, to deal with administrative things if the patient's not coping,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, and then I have a just a contact card that they have that patients have on their phone, and it has my details and, and the clinic's details and online booking. So they just store that, and yep. they have you know administrative number or leave the secretary can they can call her or text her, and she has her own phone that I've supplied to her, okay. and um, and then I have emergencies only and put my mobile number on it. Yep. I don't get too many calls. Yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah that's good
0: and you know. um one, one of the challenges that we found in, yeah. in in our clinic is that you you employ a new receptionist you need help or or maybe yeah. someone remote but they don't have an understanding of the industry or treatments ah. or complications so me has been
2: my patient for 20 years, oh, wow. okay. years. so oh, she, so was, she one was one of my patient. very best patients yeah
0: oh
3: that's clever so she's a
2: patient and a friend and so she knows me inside out. She's been my workshop victim many a time. <laughs> um, you know, she I, I have a practice on her whenever I get a new technique or a new new product, and, and she looks fantastic. So she's a great advertisement as well. So she can, with authority, say, so I've had that done, and this is how long it takes, and yeah. and that's what it feels like. Um, she's got really personal experience mm-hmm. about the techniques, the products, and, and also about, you know, who I am and how I operate as a professional in my you know, teaching and lecturing kind of workshop scenario, but also how I operate just as a person and as a doctor in my clinic because she's been my patient.
0: Yeah. That's clever. That's, that's
1: so important. important. Yeah, that's really important that the oh, person answering yeah. the phone.
2: That was by accident too. Yeah. But you, know.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, you know, you see it all the time. Yeah. You know, and she's
2: just awesome. You know, she's been a PA and she has right. good people skills.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so important that the person mm-hmm. that – um is answering the calls, is able to have intelligent conversation, be able to talk about personal yep. experience. You, you know, yeah. you see it a lot these days. You've just got people on, you know, they get a crash course from one of the pharma companies for half a day on this is how Botox works and mm. here's the phone and yeah. go book me 100 clients. It, it You know, it, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't work like that. So,
2: no. Yeah. But she's important legally too because Absolutely. You know, she is the first person that they ring up and complain to yep. if they've got a problem and the way she handles it makes all the difference in the world. So she'll... Reassure them, and you know, and and you know, connect them with me, and reassure them that I will get in contact. And you know, even with the really tricky ones, I have difficulty with. I actually often hand them to her to manage better because she's great with the patients, and they really like her. And um, she will also come in and, and sit in the clinic with me if I need it. Mm-hmm. So if I have to have a difficult discussion with a patient, or if there's, you know, I can only think of one case where I felt uncomfortable, but and I had to come in and just be there in the background so that I could, you know, be ma- just manage it that way as well. I felt more reassured.
0: That's yeah. really good advice, actually. We've done that yeah. with David. I, I kind of remember once mm-hmm. as well where – I don't know if it was miscommunication or high expectation, but the patient wasn't mm. happy.
1: I think there was some psychological issues well, potentially okay, playing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah.
3: And you know, yeah. It's, exactly the same. I, yeah. I,
0: I don't really, oh, I didn't really want David to do anything, but just to almost be a neutral third party, who's not the doctor, not the injector, mm-hmm. to just be there and hear the conversation. Just mm. s- mm-hmm. so, so it's not me versus them or them versus me. It was just yeah. It's a good tactic sometimes, yeah. I think. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. neutral person. Yeah. So what are some of the things that haven't
1: worked so well for you? What are some of the – have you had any disasters, things where you thought, oh, shit, I won't, I won't do that again? Or maybe Physically I'll try to – business? Bo- oh, like more well, well, business, I guess, but, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. I'm happy to share my disasters so people don't disaster again. Um, I think the biggest – well, I start off with business, business. Um, not having an online booking service yep. trying to text back and forth yep. it's hopeless yep. um, having pa- paper in my clinic it gets lost how do you file it how do you store it how's it safe what happens if there's a fire um, you know unless you've scanned it all which is so much double work anyway then you know why bother so so starting off paper starting off with paper and you know the small little index cards like oh. old fashioned yeah, GPs yeah, used yeah, to yeah, use yeah. that was not 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 cutting it um what else? Um, yeah, not having enough boundaries. So allowing patients to have my personal mobile number um, and thinking that I was so friendly that they could just call me or text me at any time, you know, at 2 in the morning. I'm just thinking about my Botox appointment. Can we bring it forward?
3: <laughs> you
2: know, I'm over in, in Spain and I'm just wondering. <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: You know, or have you seen this latest treatment? So being too too informal with patients was a mistake. Yeah. Because inevitably, and doing favours for those people, because inevitably it always seemed to be those patients that you allowed your boundaries down on, that it would come back and bite you twofold. Mm-hmm. You know, that expectations were high. You'd done them a favour. It wasn't quite as, as, um, as they'd hoped. And they get really annoyed and, and you just wish you'd never done it in the first place. So yeah. that's some of the mistakes. Um, treating friends is hard. Mm -hmm. I find that when I'm treating friends or family quickly, the conversation, you know, I'm treating but I'm not really thinking and I'm chatting and and suddenly I haven't done the pre-photos or I haven't, they're not in my formal processes and that's not ideal. So having to explain to to friends if I'm going to treat you, it has to be kind of formal that I'm going to be, I might seem, you know, abrupt or directive but I really need to stick in my kind of professional mode because otherwise I'll miss things such um, a good that's point. That's been a big mm. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Uh. I made lots of mistakes in trying to trying to work out which ones. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I think not setting up as a company from the beginning. Ah, uh, so, yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. The old clacker. Well, <laughs> so. that was my
0: question. Cause I did the same yeah. thing. I was a solo, um, I'm solo just trader. doing that
2: now. Can you believe it? You know, wow. So I've paid so much tax. I'm supporting mm. half of Tasmania. Probably. I'm not sure.
0: Well, David, can <laughs> you, can you sort of maybe explain that to the listeners who aren't tax gurus?
1: Oh, well, look, I mean, um, Look, I'll just start off by saying I'm not familiar with the law in, in different countries, but I, I assume that the f- similar sort of concepts exist, which is that um, you can set up a – a company, in, in, in this case in Australia, we generally would call it a PTY limited or a limited liability company, which is basically a company as its own living and breathing entity. Just think of it like as, an, as another person. And then that company is effectively your trading entity that conducts all of your mm-hmm. all of your business dealings. And then you as the injector, whether you be a doctor or a nurse or whatever it is, essentially work for that company and get paid whatever you deem. So it's kind of weird because you, as the director, I'm assuming of the company, you have control over that entity. Um, but you as Simone Dorian actually exist as a separate entity to the company. And so what that allows you to do is a, it gives you, um, protection, um, from potentially being sued. So Essentially, if someone wants to sue someone, they'll, they'll try and look for everyone that's involved. They'll try and get any get to any any source of income. Um, but having that protection of the company means that they can't generally come after your your personal assets. So you have a, a limited protection. It's called corporate veil or protection, which allows the company to almost act as like a like a wall or a sort of quarantined you from things that go wrong in the company. So if you've got like your house in your personal name, you've got assets, everything like that. Having the company set up. Um, in most cases, will protect you from ever having that attacked by someone that wants to come after you for for something, whether it be warranted mm-hmm. or unwarranted. Mm-hmm. Um, so protection is is a big thing. Um, the second thing is um, the difference between what you pay as a percentage of tax as a regular POYG employee versus what a company pays at, at a fixed rate um, is quite different and it can make a big difference to the amount of money that you um, take home at the end of the day. Because a lot of the time it's not about how much you build in revenue is how much of it actually ends up in your pocket as profit. And that's what we're all sort of worried about is, you know, you can be making a million dollars a year, but if, you know, $999,000, um, is going somewhere else, then it doesn't really matter. You, you might be better off earning far less money, but actually ending up with more of it in your pocket. So, um, mm. when you are a, a sole trader and all your incomes being handled with you as you personally, then you essentially become eligible to pay your marginal tax rate. And as doctors and nurses that are generally in the higher income brackets, you're going to get taxed at a very high marginal tax rate. It might be sort of, you know, 40 to 50 cents in the dollar, depending on, yeah. on, on sort of where you're at. Whereas in Australia, in, in most instances, up to a certain level, up like in the many, many millions, um, you will only pay it's about 28 and to 30% tax flat as a company. And so, There's nothing illegal about this. It's just about setting it up in in an intelligent way, so that the money that comes into the company only gets taxed at twenty eight and a half percent. And there are lots of expenses that can be attributed to your business, whether it be a car that you purchase that you that you you sort of use predominantly for work, a mobile phone, um, supplies for your for your business, education, going on. Um, You know, you might go on a vacation, but part of that might be attributed to going to a conference. So part of that that. That um, that expense becomes mm. tax, de- tax deductible, so having that mm. entity that actually filters all of your income gives you protection um, to a large extent from um, legal action that could touch your personal your personal assets um, is definitely the way to go. So when I met Jake, um, you know we would sort of just shoot in the breeze one day talking about you know financial finances and money and, and so on, and um, we're Jewish, you see, yes, so we yeah. do these things. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's in the blood, and so you know, I sort of discovered that, you know, Jake was, you know, earning, you know, a decent amount of money. And I you know, sort of looked at how much tax he was paying. I was like, what, what is going on here? Why are, you, why are you paying so much tax? And, you know, this is the advice I'm getting from my accountants. And, you know, I'm pretty sure this is correct. So one thing leads to another, I had a conversation with him and the accountant on the phone, and it worked out that this accounting firm um, were, were typically set up to look after doctors, but doctors who were working in sort of like a public health setting where they were mm. getting a, a salary from the hospital. And so yeah. when you're an employee, you don't have the ability really to um, pay yourself via via your own company. And so I put him in touch with, with a different accountant who was familiar with this type of, of structure and setup. And now even though I'm sure your income has gone up between now and when I spoke to you last, but I mean just as a percentage, the amount of money that he's now putting in his pocket or was putting in his pocket then, even on the same income level, was much more. Yes. So it's, it's, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that it's it's really important that you seek out the counsel of, of a good accountant who understands your situation, potentially looks after people in a similar space, which is why word of mouth is so important. You will find there are people, just like in medicine or, or whatever it is, you find people that subspecialize in, in certain things and there are practitioners out there who are very familiar with this industry and how it's set up and what doctors and nurses are doing and how to optimize your tax situation so that all the hard work that you're doing and all the money that you're making, um, most of it ends mm. up, although as, as most of it, as legally possible ends up in your pocket. And you've also got a greater level of protection if something yeah. goes wrong.
0: Simone, you said you, mm. you've changed to that model quite recently. So I'm
2: just changing. So how, how <laughs> did that come speak. about?
0: Like, how did you realize or, or decide that you need to set up a business?
2: I think I'd known for a while just because, you know, everyone has a business that runs a business and runs it as a company and, and not many people are actually working as um, as independent contractors or as sole traders. Um, so there must have been a reason, but it just seemed like a big jump and, and you know, having to make all these appointments to discuss mm-hmm. it. And then it actually just got to the point where I was sort of like, come on, Dorian, this is ridiculous. Just <laughs> go, on, go and talk to someone. You know? Yeah. I think it there's a I have a reluctance I don't know if everyone else feels it but you know it's like seeking advice professionally it it sort of seems um in some ways it, it seemed like a waste of money or, mm. or it might not be for me I'm not that big I don't need that advice but actually you quickly can become you know bigger than you thought and and you know setting up from the beginning it would have made so much more sense and I would have been my assets would be protected now and I think you know and talking to you David as well it just made a hell of a lot more sense to do it
1: yeah yeah mm. it's, it's just these little things and I think that it, and that's why it's so important to um, reach out to your to your people your community people who are potentially outside of your practice that are good at business or and just getting an mm. understanding because I think it's 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 really easy to sort of sort of fall into, you know, your insular sort of little bubble and, and, and sort of not realise what options are out there or who to talk to. I mean, it's really important and I, I said this on one, I think it was either with Natasha or one of the people that we, we spoke to was about having that, that team around you, you know, yeah. a, a great lawyer. Um, Someone yeah. that understand and 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 hopefully before the shit hits the fan, you know, like sort of, you know, <laughs> w- when you're in a panic and someone's coming after you, yeah. or you've realised you've got a tax problem, or whatever it is, you know, you, that you don't, messy
2: cleaner. <laughs> yeah, you
1: don't want to be making like rash decisions and just going for the first person that you can find because yeah. you're stressed and you want to resolve something. It's really important, as you said, you know, start the way you want to finish. Um, Have that team around you, a great lawyer who's looked at all of your consent forms, all of your medico-legal side of things because I've seen a lot in this industry people just go, oh, you know, can I just, you know, they'll get a consent form, they'll sort of copy it from someone else, they'll add a few little lines in here and then Mm. that's their consent form. And, look, that might be okay, Um, it might not be, Um, but these are things that are really important to have Mm. looked at by a lawyer to make sure that, you know, you're protected, all of your consent forms are giving you as much potential protection As, as, as possible, um, you've got a great accountant that really understands your financial situation, what your career and, and personal goals are financially, um, understands how to make sure that you're paying um, as little tax as possible, still operating within the, the confines of the law, um, potentially even a financial planner could, to think about, well, you know, at the end of the day, when, and we'll get to this in mm-hmm. a minute, you know, if when I do mm-hmm. decide I don't wanna do this anymore, I wanna start winding down or go do something else with my life, um, what does it look like when I want to exit from this business? Cause everyone's always so concerned about, well, how do I start a business? How do I, how do I become successful? How do I do this? How do they, do, how do I do that? But very, very seldom do you hear people talking about, well, how do I get out of this business? And, mm-hmm. you know, some of the experiences are, that I've had working, you know, in and around sort of people in private equity and people that buy and sell businesses for a living. That's almost the question that comes before anything else. Before they even work out how mm. they're going to buy it, they're going to work out how the hell they're going to get out. Mm. Um, yeah. And that's something that is a very foreign concept um, to many people, particularly medical professionals. You know, like the idea of starting a business is daunting, let alone working out, thinking 10, 15, 20 years ahead. How am I going to
0: get out of here? Yeah, our yeah. hands are the job. That that, that That's what it yeah. boils down to, or, or for most it's people. It's
2: interesting, though, Jake, you know, why do we seek – a professional mentor in our medical side of things, a clinical mentor, but we're not seeking business mentors.
0: Because when we went to medical school, we didn't discuss any of this crap. Sadly. Yeah. I, I really yeah.
3: think that well, we should
0: do. Well, I think your training prepares you to
3: work yeah. in a
1: public
0: health setting. Yeah. This whole this whole yeah. concept of
1: private practice in aesthetics is relatively new. Yeah, don't I mean, I mean
0: look, taking this back <laughs> even further, I know my children, unless they choose business, will never be taught about banking or savings or interest or um mm. inflation it just yeah. doesn't come up in our education yeah so mm. it's quite sad really yeah, yeah. well and, and at the end of the mm. day i mean your chosen
1: profession is your is your vehicle to where you want to get to in life you know whether you're mm. cleaning streets cleaning people's homes you're a lawyer you're a doctor you go to work every day to do a job to attain something in life now hopefully you're doing something that you love because then it doesn't really ever feel like you're working Um, But at the end of the day, this profession is a vehicle to allow you to buy the things that you want, be able to provide for your family, be able to go on holidays, be able to have a nest egg when you decide you've had enough. It's a vehicle. So it's about how do I drive this vehicle in the most efficient Mm. way that's going to give me the reward that I want or that I need when I decide that I've had enough.
0: Yeah. What's to ask Simone? Because another angle or aspect to your Mm. career is teaching and being a key mm-hmm. opinion leader international speaker which again maybe people don't fully realize your experience but how did you fall into that and and is there any angle to sort of continue that but maybe not run your clinic as much
2: yeah i fell into that because um i, I was actually asked by Galderma would i consider giving running a workshop on lips mm-hmm. um i i don't know i'd always loved doing lips it's very artistic Um, you know, it it takes, it's the final step in, in your, in your sculpture. It's the icing on the cake. Um, but it's incredibly hard to do well. And, you know, I had had a procedure where it it just worked nicely. Everything was in proportion and a lot of people would come to have their lips done. So I was really nervous. I didn't even know how to put a PowerPoint presentation together. (laughs) So I agreed to do it just to force myself out of my comfort zone and, so I did that, and it was actually a lovely experience. I was really nervous, but in the end, um, it was a great afternoon, and I had a lot of fun with the with the nurses and doctors I was teaching. And I realised I loved to teach. I I hadn't done a lot of teaching of medical students or anything before because I'd you know sort of been a, a registrar and then and then working. And um, but it was just a lovely experience. So I agreed to do a few more, and then I. Gosh, I was asked to do um, to be one of the Australian ambassadors for a program for Galderma that focused on communication, called the Harmony Program, and it was this program that focused on things other than just injection techniques. It was about you know how to how to not. How to spot dysmorphic patients? How to treat patients well? Best communication? How to take a thorough history and examination and put it all together into a, a gold standard consultation? So it's about consultation skills, and that was kind of a strong point of mine coming from general practice. So because we get taught consultation skills and grilled on it, and and you know it's a it's a a real focus of the course. Um, so that's. I did that and then did a bit of speaking for them at at the events to launch that program. And it just all snowballed from there.
0: Mm. And so do you still continue doing as much of that or are you sort of stepping away?
2: Um, I I tend to do only not small workshops anymore. I just Mm. don't have the time. I tend to do the bigger events um, when I'm asked if, if, if it's a good sort of thing, I think. So I'll do um, bigger events for Galderma. Usually just I, I, I don't have multiple different companies that I work for, though I, I don't think it's unethical to do that, and I'm starting to think it's probably more ethical to do mm. so. Yeah. Um, I don't particularly want to be known as, you know, one company loyal, even though we're always influenced by who we're buying for. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to educate about safety and about techniques, not about um, not sell someone's gel for them. Yeah. So, yeah, I now I I like doing independent things the best where I'm allowed to talk about what I really do in my clinic, where I, what I really how I really use the products, what my favorite products out of various ranges are for different indications, um, where I'm not hamstrung by not mentioning a competitor's brand because we all use all the brands and it's important to kind of share our knowledge and be able to compare one to the other and that's how we learn. Yeah. You, know, you can't talk about just one brand. Yeah, and uh, we just use one brand and be able to to have a comparison. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and I hate being told what to do. So. <laughs> well,
1: I, I, think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that um, whether we, I don't, I, look, I don't think that there's people out there who are consciously giving biased information, but it's unfortunately when you've only got experience or most of your experience or the predominant um, portion of what mm. you do is with one particular product or brown it's almost impossible for you not to develop an unconscious bias. Yeah. So yeah. And, and that's something.
2: Well, yeah. is, sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I was just gonna say, like I I just wanted to point out that I don't think there's any malice involved here. I think it's just the nature of human mm. psychology is that, that when you sort of only you know, predominant most of your experiences with one
0: one particular thing, mm. then that's all you've got to reflect upon. That's all you can sort of share. And I think yeah. that yeah. I mean, you know, Simone said earlier on in the in the chat, I mean it just makes logical business sense just to uh if, if you're comfortable and happy using a product to buy you know you said a, a year's supply of filler I mean because mm. you know what you're doing you're saving some money and your mm. life is easy so it's, mm. it's it's not even a bias thing or you're a okay. KOL well, it's just logical it's mm. just easier mm. sometimes yep. um you know and and if you have like 10 different brands in your cupboard I would be mm. confused I'd be like well I don't don't even know which one to pick today. I have a lot of brands in
2: my cupboard. So I buy in bulk, um, you know, from, with products that I really like. um, And then I have niche products as well. But sometimes what I do is I swap with some, you know, with colleagues as well to see what other things are like. And and particularly if you're treating a colleague, often I will actually be treating with their preferred brand. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting some experience in that too. So that's been really a great thing yeah. to do. You know, we, I sometimes, you know, work with need quarter and we swap patients yep. or we mm-hmm. see each other. And, and it's a, a great thing to do, um, to gain their inside expertise and, and to have a play with their products as well.
0: Yeah. That's a good idea. I was, I was just thinking from, yeah. from the business chat again, have you done your own training? Do you do your own paid mentorship where people come and learn no, from so you? I'd,
2: I'd set up to do that. So you can see in my clinic behind me. There's two beds there. And in my, in the, in my mind's eye, I'd thought about running mentorships and having, you know, a couple of patients and a couple of doctors in and and being able to train them. But it's been so busy at the clinic just with patients that um, it's been so hard to even get time to think about doing that.
0: Yeah, I. I'm in yeah. the same boat. Yeah. Same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Ideally, yes, but how do you do it?
0: Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you get questions all the time cuz I do and I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, it sounds awesome, but I just I don't know where to no start. I, I, it, yeah, just there's no yeah. momentum to get it started yeah. uh, and then no yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, should we move on
0: to the
1: exit, the exit part yeah, the exit. Of, <laughs> of the discussion? So, um, sure. this sort of came up you and I were having a coffee it was almost a month ago now. And we sort of spoke about, you know, what does life look, I think I said, you know, what does life look for you after you've decided you've had enough injecting? And I guess, you know, this mm. is not saying that you're about to retire or, you you know, thinking about retirement. Anyone that's got any common sense at all will be thinking about, well, what's the next stage of my life look like? And I've built up this thing. How do I make the most of it? And not only from a monetary perspective, but there's also an element of legacy there too. I mean, you've built something up, you've got all these patients that, that you're treating. Mm. You want to make sure as someone that, that cares for your patients that when you decide to hang it up, that they're going to be in the hands of someone that you trust, that you respect, um, that I guess uh, aligns with your philosophies and ethics, um, perhaps even mm. some of your aesthetic you know, nuances as well. Um, and sometimes it gets to a point where this realization dawns on people. And and by then it's kind of too late because as we sort of said at the top of the podcast, it's very difficult to sell something that's just been built on you. At the end of the day, when you decide to, to sort of exit, if you haven't sort of thought about these conversations and how you're gonna potentially exit, um, mm. you can sometimes just w- have to walk away and, and, and sort of close your doors and just say, well, you know, sorry guys, th- this is it. And, and, your sure patients, is over. and your patients have to go and find some, someone else to treat them. Um, and so I think it's, it's twofold. I think, yeah, one, it's legacy and two, financially, you've built something up, you've built an asset, but you sort of, you're hamstrung, you're tied to it. And without you, there is, there is no value, there is no asset. All you're selling is a lease potentially and some a bed and some trolleys and whatever else is in your <laughs> clinic, whatever else you've set up. <laughs> Yeah.
3: Plants. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> you've got your photography stuff in the back. Yeah. <laughs> they get you another oh, grand. Yeah.
3: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not that's not even going to buy the
2: front door of my villa I'm imagining in Italy or France.
0: There you go. <laughs> I mean, to be clear, you're not yeah. planning on retiring tomorrow, right, Simone? You've, no, you've still got the energy. No,
2: definitely not. No, I, I can't imagine fully retiring, but I know I'm going to want to at some point. Yeah. Um, I think I've got another 10 or 15 years in me. Yeah. And – and then I would like to think that I could sell um, this or at least some legacy, I suppose, yep. and, and also gain some some reward for having built up a loyal clientele yep. and and running a practice in an ethical kind of way. Mm-hmm. But you know, maybe that is at the moment if I shut my door that would be it, you know, it'd be would yep. be over. Um so, uh, yeah, in the last couple of years, or last year or so, having a lot of time on our hands in mm-hmm. lockdown, I, I was starting to think about, well, is this it? What next? Um, and, I, you know, I've got family demands. I Number one, they are my, you know, primary focus, I suppose. Um, and, you know, I'm on my own. I don't have a partner living with me. So, you know, I'm providing school fees and, and all that sort of stuff. So, but also I want time with them as well and as they grow up and and I want time for myself so I have to think about it so yes I know I think I need to start to to work out how I can either have someone to take over the business in a with an understanding from the onset that that's how they're coming in to be mentored and and the question is how then do you make sure that they are loyal and Mm -hmm. and how is it you know is this a does that begin as a contract or mm-hmm. you know, I'm not even sure where to begin with that? Yeah. Um, how do you guarantee someone you doesn't you've mentored for two or three years and given them a day or two a week and you know, your patients are seeing them when they can't get into you, that they don't just go around the corner and oh. open up. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've never worked under it to be honest, I've never worked under a, any sort of metigenist style contract as mm-hmm. a GP. I worked with you know, just a normal old contract. And when I joined a race, we didn't have, for the first long time, we didn't even have a contract. Yeah. You know, if it was, it was a goodwill, you yep. know, it works for me, it works for you, so I'll stay and we'll have you. And it worked beautifully. Mm-hmm. But I think that's probably naive now. Um
1: Yeah. <laughs> Suggestions, yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, I just think you just always you need to prepare for the worst and hope for the best. Um, yeah. And you get you get all your contracts done. You get them done correctly. You dot all your i's. You cross all your t's. You put mm. those contracts in a drawer or in, on your server somewhere in the cloud, and you hope they never mm. see the light of day. But if something does go wrong, you've got you've got these things in your in your back pocket to protect you. So I think that the yeah. first overarching sort of concept to sort of you know get your head around is that when you go to sell a business, you know, anyone that's looking to buy it is going to be thinking, well, once or just use you because we're talking to you as an example, what yeah. happens when Simone leaves? What am i left with? And so at the moment it sounds like very little other than, you know, the paraphernalia in your clinic and, and the sort of and, and the sort of fixtures and finish. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so whether mm. you sort of set up a brand, which might be, you know, what's not called Dr. Simone Dory and it's called mm. whatever it is. Um, what's it called? Is it Arrays or erase? Oh, where I used to
2: work. Yeah. Yeah. It, it
1: was called the Erase. Yeah. Yeah, like as in Eraser. E R A S E. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that that's yeah. that's a that's a brand. He's like this doctor yeah, has set up a brand. He has multiple mm. um, people working mm. for him. I'm assuming. Mm. Um, I'm assuming he does surgery, but that's sort of an adjunct or a separate part of the mm-hmm. practice to his non non surgical side. Um, so that's a concept where you've actually built up a business that has multiple streams of income that isn't reliant on a single person. Mm-hmm. And so you can do that via either setting up, as you said, like, like a brand where you might have multiple people working within that business, you might have multiple locations and working towards making yourself redundant. That is kind of always mm-hmm. the aim that you're working toward as, as a business owner that's looking to one day sell this asset is how do I get this business to a point where it can go along and generate good revenue without me? And that's generally something that you can't just switch off overnight. It's a process mm-hmm. of, of getting it to that point. So you could either look at setting up like a brand and removing your name from it altogether um, and having multiple people working within your business. And that's, I guess, more of a commercial pursuit where you might be looking to sort of grow something bigger than yourself with multiple locations and, and lots of people. The other option potentially you could look at is having some sort of succession plan in place. So the underlying principle is still the same, which is you're removing yourself from the business as being the only person generating income to potentially having a plan where in the future you bring on mentees, whether they be one or two, I'd probably recommend having more than one so that you're sort of Mm. mitigating your risk because if one person Mm. goes sideways or doesn't do Mm. or has some emergency that happens in their life or, you know, life's unpredictable, you know, sometimes things happen, Mm. um, that you've got someone else waiting in the wings who potentially could take that opportunity. So I think it's about, again, as you said, finding people that you can trust, you've got some history with. Mm. Um, But these days people are very fickle. No one stays in a job for 20, like you staying in a job for 18 years is, is, is quite rare. If you think back to like your parents or your grandparents and how long they used to spend in roles, someone would spend their whole life working for the same person in the same job every day for the whole entire life. That doesn't exist these days. People are transient. They move, they're looking, always looking for the next opportunity. And when you identify these people, it's, it's sort of your responsibility. If you want to have them into the future is to identify them and work out how you're going to secure them into the future. Because if someone's good, you can bet your bottom dollar that someone else is trying to poach them because it doesn't take long for word to get around because good people are rare. Someone's going Mm -hmm. to be trying to get them or they'll be having their own aspirations to set up their own business. Question. Yeah.
0: So Simone has a database of X amount of patients, let's say a couple of thousand, whatever. Yeah. Um, yes, she doesn't have many assets apart from stuff in the clinic and a year's supply of filler maybe in the cupboard. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but what, how do you value <laughs> that? Two cats, two
3: boys. L- it? L- yeah. l- let's yeah, yeah. say that, that
0: the mentorship goes good. There's yeah. someone trained in a few years. Mm-hmm. Are you suggesting that the, the clinic continues as it is, but Simone steps away and there's a shared income or does Simone sell it? Um,
1: I would like the, the sort of The sort of idea I have in my head is it would be a a slow transition over probably like a five-year period or something like that where you identify someone that's aligned with all the things that you believe in or enough of them that you would feel comfortable having them treat your patient. Hmm. And slowly, Mm -hmm. as just how you transitioned yourself in, slowly start transitioning yourself out. It's not something that you're just going to be able to turn the tap off overnight. It's something mm. where you 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 bring the right person on, or you might bring a couple of people on who you might get to do a day, a day a week each, or a couple of days a week, or however you want to structure it. There's a million different ways to skin the cat. Where you bring them into the business and they're dipping their toe in, you're dipping your toe in as well. You're testing the relationship. And then potentially, and these are just examples. These aren't sort of hard and fast rules that people listening need to follow. These are just ideas and concepts that you that you may wish to explore, which is to find a couple of people who you've identified as someone who you know you, you agree with the way that they that they um, medically treat patients the business ethics you get to know them a little bit and then having those those honest conversations like hey what is your next career move what it is th- mm-hmm. what is it that you'd ultimately lo- like for yourself in the future because this is what i'm thinking you know this is my timeline this is how long i've been doing it for i would like to be able to move on at, at, at such a, at such and such a date or around this sort of time frame you know, how would you feel about potentially taking on this practice or continuing on when I've decided that I've had enough or even just supporting me through my slow transition to eventually exit, but maybe that's over a, you know, a longer period of time. So I think, you know, and a lot of people don't have a lot of savings these days. And so there are creative ways you can get around allowing someone to um, buy into a business slowly over time, whether you put them on a profit share arrangement initially, they can use those funds to then slowly start putting aside to acquire shares. Or at the end of the day, when you decide to sell a business, they've got money that they've earned from a profit share you've given them over, over a period of time to actually buy in. But I think, first of all, it's about having a sort of mapping out a plan or a timeline in, in, in your own head working out if there are people in your orbit or if there aren't, how do you go and find them people that potentially might want to work with you and then have their own business and then slowly working on a, on a plan on how you're going to execute this over a period of time. And a large part of that, the points that you raised around, you know, making sure you're not bringing on the right, the wrong person who's just coming in for a free ride then is going to try and pillage your database and open up around the corner. That's why it's so important that you have open and honest and frank conversations with these people, that you engage the right legal assistance to make sure that if you do go out on a limb and offer someone this opportunity that you've got your back covered if it if it goes sideways or they decide to do the wrong thing, that you've got legal legal documentation and recourse in place to protect you when these things um, potentially occur because, you know, sometimes these things happen. Sometimes people don't do what they say they're going to do.
0: Before I forget um, yeah. to ask this, have you ever been in a position where you had to legally yeah. enforce some of these contracts? Yep. So, Because yeah. I've always been told, you know, the standard contract that many of the chains mm. give out is, oh, you can't set up within five kilometres. And then yeah. I've been told that's not legally binding. You yeah. can't restrict people's yep. earnings. Mm-hmm. So what's it's, the truth? It, it, depends, it depends on
1: your scenario. It depends how your contract's been written. It depends on the nature of the relationship. Um, restraints are designed not to stop people earning an income. Mm-hmm. Restraints are there to design to stop people damaging the business that they're exiting. right? And so it really depends on how it's written. So a lot of these contracts, and I'm not going to talk about specifics in chains, but just talking in general terms, a lot of contracts are written in, in sort of very general terms. They they try and outline these huge, huge blanket protected areas. You know, for example, if it says um, you can't operate a similar business within f- a five kilometer radius, well, that might be fine for um, somewhere rural where there's like no one for like a hundred kilometers. But if you're like in sort of Bondi Junction in Sydney, for example, which is like a major hub yeah. where there's like literally hundreds, you know, hundreds of, of, of uh, providers, that might be considered or deemed unreasonable by a court. That might be that's too restrictive because, um, you know, the, the, the distance is, is just not enough. It, it was five kilometres might, you know, that's a long distance when you're dealing in highly densely populated yeah. areas with lots of competitors. So mm. it, it's, not, it's not a hard or fast rule. The, the, the aim is to work with a, a solicitor or a lawyer that understands this area of the law, that understands what it is you're trying to achieve and actually writes a contract that is enforceable. It is enforceable, it is fair, it's there to design to protect you. So things like not being able to solicit your clients. You know, social media is a dangerous one as well um, because a lot of injectors in my experience get around this compete issue. They don't actually solicit a client directly but what they'll do is they'll put up social media posts saying, well, I'm over here now um, and even though they haven't directly contacted someone the fact that they've advertised it and put it up um, means that the contract that you've written or that they've signed is really doesn't protect you from that kind of thing. Mm. So even having sort of sensible conversations around you, the way you manage social media. So maybe it's a policy that they work within in your practice. They can't have a professional social media account. It needs to be a social media account that is that is shared by the practice, mm. that they're not mm. they're not allowed to take photos of patients unless they're done with the, the clinic camera. There's no mobile, mm. there's no photos taken on, on mobile phones and iPads and things like that. Mm. So you've got some control over these before and afters because what will happen is they'll take these before and afters and then use them mm. to market their new business. But they've actually been produced with your patients or that belong to your business. Mm. Mm. Um, mm. And so social media is one of these really dangerous tools. Um, it's a mm. double-edged sword, which can it can be great, but it can also lead to a lot of disasters as well.
0: Yeah. How, how do you feel about that sort of mentorship model? Of, for an ex- that,
2: that would be much more comfortable for me than the concept of opening you know, a multiple-site business. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's not who I am. Yeah. Um, and I'd be so far out of my depth, I yeah. think in that way, the, the other thought that I had, and that's one thing is I would like to mentor someone. I yeah. think eventually to take over and that would re- you know involve finding new premises, larger yeah. premises with two to three rooms, because potentially you have to, you know, I want to be able to work the days I want to work. And, and, you know, if I'm cutting down then, and you want to keep the same income, I'm going to have to have more people working for me.
3: Yeah.
2: But, um, so new premises definitely would have to be involved, and that's doable. Um, the other thought is, can you or would would a business owner of an existing business be interested in taking over
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, a business like mine by rather than um, than them buying my business and premise, then you that you amalgamate yep. the business, so you take your business into their business for yep. five years before I retire, yep. and then. Um, sort of have the patient slowly transition in mm-hmm. that sort of sense. Yeah,
1: that's 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 possible. And you've seen that a lot with like sort of large corporations that have like it happened a lot in the dental industry um, right. where like I think it was called Dental Corp. They came in and sort of approached like lots of dentists around the country and said, hey, we'd like to buy your business. We need you to work with with us for the next two years. Here's a, here's a chunk of money now and here's a chunk of money at the end, assuming everyone does what they say they're going to mm-hmm. do and does it the right way, then you'll get this at the end. But they sort of rope you into the business. Um, for a period of time after the transaction has sort of taken place or part of the transaction has taken place. Mm -hmm. And it allows them to then keep you in the business for a period of time to slowly transition people across. So, it's not just shutting off the tap. So, yeah, definitely you could look at becoming part of someone else's practice as well. But a lot of that will come Mm -hmm. down to as well is you know, mitigating the risk of your business, all the things that you've done in terms of having a paperless environment, all your systems, your processes, your compliance, all Mm -hmm. those sorts of things, any sort of diligent and sensible business owner will be looking at a business. And one thing they'll be looking at is, well, how much profit do you generate? How much revenue is coming in? What's your cost of acquisition? What's the profit at the end of the day? All those sort of financial questions. But then the other things I'll be looking at, uh, what are the, what's the risk profile with this business? What are all the things that could go wrong? And they'll be looking at things like, you know, your medical compliance, what's your record keeping like, how easy is it going to be for us to sort of take your database and put it into our database? How have you sort of you thought about your software system and what that's going to look like in terms of if you do need to export that client database and put it into another system? So all of these sort of questions will start to come up. And as I said, it'll, mm. it'll be it'll probably be a two-pronged conversation, one about the financials and one about the risk. And so mm. you sort of have to have both yeah. of those things sort of tied off and you just basically, it's like handing someone a present. It needs to be neatly wrapped with a bow, nice and easy for (laughs) them to take over. As soon as someone has to start deconstructing stuff and there's documents over here and that's over there and this patient file, like that becomes Mm. like a shit show. That becomes too hard basket for a lot of people. So the more that you can package things up and have all your ducks in a row, Mm. the easier you'll find that sort of process.
2: Are there people that can do that with you, guide you through that?
0: Yes, they exist. My, My feeling would be that the mentorship just from knowing what I know mm. about you, Simona, it seems more organic. It seems more what I think you would enjoy doing mm. as well. You know, but that, that third scenario of of sort of handing over to another company, you completely lose yeah. the control and mm. then you're almost just sort of working for you know, franchise again before you mm. exit. It's sort of Rash. less palatable. Well, that that's how I heard mm. that. Maybe I got that wrong.
1: I mean, there, there are people out there that that, that may want to, have, they've got like a single practice. And just because you've got a brand or a large business doesn't mean you're going to have multiple chains or that you're, mm. you're a franchise. There are people out there that might have a large, successful practice.
0: Who just want more. You
1: know, you, you sort of hear about these companies merging all the time. Mm. Like a larger agency buys a small, slightly smaller agency. And these things happen in, in the medical space as well. So it's not, there's not... Mm. There's not one way to do this. There's like, hybr- there's hybrids, there's, there's lots of different, and probably scenarios that I haven't even thought of as well. Yeah. Um, but that is the, the general, the, the underlying general principle is work out how to make yourself redundant, identify good people and de-risk your mm-hmm. business and, and sort of have everything sorted out from a compliance mm. and sort of business organisation or mm. your all legal documents and everything just taken care of rather than an afterthought or something that you're scrambling to do at the last minute when you've decided that you've had enough. Because a lot of that time, people might reach a point where they've decided they've had enough. And it might just happen quite quickly. Sometimes these things don't sort of, you know, they, they mm-hmm. sort of, most people don't have a 10-year plan. It's sort of, they wake up and think, oh, God, I've had enough of this. yeah, And then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. you're, you're desperately trying to do what should have been done over sort of three to five years mm-hmm. in sort of 12 to 18 months. And you make mistakes. You won't get the true value for your business. You sort of, you've got these time pressures. You never want to make sort of emotional decisions when it comes to business decisions. You want to be able to separate your personal emotions and be able to deal with things methodically and on their own merits. And when you're rushed or you've got like a tight timeline, a lot of the time that stuff can sort of be compromised.
0: Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, what about, you know, you've got all this knowledge, experience, and, and obviously your skill, but if you, if you put your syringes down, you can still teach, share, mentor, yeah. lecture travel Mm -hmm. and and do all of those things i reckon Mm -hmm. you know we probably haven't had a generation of injectors who have kind of done that Uh that they've either injected or they haven't injected but i don't think we've Mm -hmm. had a a, sort of a generation of injectors who have sort of you know stepped back but become professional educators as it were Mm -hmm. so that that could be an option as well
2: Yeah, probably the reason is because, you know, it it doesn't in any way pay nearly as much as Mm -hmm. as actually being, you know, having your hands on and and treating patients. It depends how much you do It's a sacrifice in a way. I guess it does, you know, the the big guys around town that are flying around the world constantly, they're paid, you know, a lot to do that. And and that's, you know, easily enough to cover their, their, um, what they'd be losing, you know, on a quiet sort of day of practice.
1: Yeah. I guess the other, the concept is, Mm -hmm. you know, what are you doing with your income? During, and this isn't a question to you, this is just a general question for everyone yeah, to sort of think right. about, which is what are you actually doing with the money while you're generating it? So in all yeah. these golden years where you're making all this, you're making all this money, you know, you're buying handbags and sports cars and all these, all these sorts of things that are not going to provide you with any sort of return on on investment. Um, you know, are you investing in property? Are you intelligently investing in in the stock market? Are you doing things Mm -hmm. that will perpetuate income for you into the future? And this is a concept that I've spoken to Jake about Mm -hmm. a lot is setting up passive forms of income. As I said, like this, what you do every day, is a job to a vehicle to get you to where you want to get in life. So mm-hmm. over, during that time, like, what are you doing with that income? So that when you decide to mm-hmm. hang it up, and you might say, I want to go and educate, and I don't really need yeah. the money because I've got all this money coming in from exactly. these investment that properties that I've best. bought. I've got a great stock portfolio. Maybe I've invested in some other businesses as a, as a passive investor, and you know, now I don't need to inject, but I'd like to educate but I don't really care how much I get paid. I get to travel the world. I get to do all these amazing things, but I've got all this income coming in from these other investments that I've set up during my time. Yeah. And that's another part of the discussion mm. as well. There's maybe not for today, but like how do you think about, you know, setting up revenue streams that will keep coming for you once you've decided to
0: stop doing what you're doing? That's where we need a financial planner on. Yeah. Probably. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. And just surround yourself with people. Mm. I mean, I think a lot of the time you, you mm. sort of get caught in in your own little bubble of, of you, know, you know, you guys in this industry, you're probably talking to doctors and nurses and whatever else, mm. but like, are you talking to people who are business people? Are you part of like a business network of, of sort of like a, you know, there are these business networks around where there's people in groups who are accountants and lawyers and property developers and all these types of thing. Like, you know, start circulating, start mixing, start meeting with these people. Yeah,
0: I've yeah. actually got a question. Yeah. Have you spoken to colleagues, you know, similar age group or period of their injecting, where they're, they're having similar thoughts? Have you got their get got some of their ideas?
2: I think most of us seem to be working on our, you know, looking at passive ways of earning passive income, you know, for the future. Mm-hmm. So concentrating on. Look, it depends a lot of us have school fees and and you yep. know demanding kind of um, bills and, and expenses to to manage but I think in the back of my mind it always is you know you you know what are we going to do with this and how am I building an income for my future yeah um, but no I haven't been involved in business groups or really been talking to to many people about it mm. because I think you get busy particularly as a you know working on your own. You sort of get busy with your patients and yep. you can't really discuss it with them. And then you might be at conferences and things, but there's other things taking your attention and your responsibilities there. So mm-hmm. that's a good idea.
1: Yeah, maybe you dedicate yeah. one, one day a fortnight or a couple of days a month to focus on your business but not injecting and doing things that are helping you set up the next stage of, of your life is just, is just sometimes you just need to dedicate those mm-hmm. days. I'm not talking to patients today. This is a day where I'm gonna to go to, I've got a, a breakfast meeting with my with my group of, of, of entrepreneurs or people that are entrepreneur groups that you can join as well. And that's, you spending that time focusing on this because it's very hard to be, you know, worried about your patients and, and clinical care at the same time as using a completely different part of your brain um, and, mm-hmm. and doing something. That, and again, probably something that's quite foreign to you initially, and I don't mean you specifically, just you generally. Um, how would anyone know this stuff unless they've been taught or spent time doing it? You you just wouldn't. it would just be like me deciding Mm. I'm going to do medicine one day. Well, great.
0: Go to university and and get a degree, you know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have to say, I I think me and Simone are very, very similar. Like we were trained as doctors. Now we're trained as injectors. We do our thing. we're, We're very accomplished at it. But outside of that, I feel quite naive. I feel silly turning up to an entrepreneur's breakfast because I'm like, I'm a fake. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. And I don't know where to start and I don't know where to stop. And it's, it's very difficult.
1: But you know, most people like helping other people. And I think, you know, having that vulnerability and saying, look, you know, I'm a a successful injector. I'd like to learn more about business. I'd like to start networking. I'd like to start meeting people who can give me different perspectives or different knowledge or, you know, and it's just, it's just a different strategy. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing wrong with knowing nothing. I think the first thing is admitting that you know nothing, which I think a lot of professionals have a lot of trouble doing because they're really smart people that did well at university. So there's a little bit of ego there potentially. And so I think that being, um, you know, honest enough to say, yeah, I'm really good at this, but
0: I know nothing about this. Yeah. Help me. Most people are happy to help. I'll come with you, Simone. I'll buy you a flat light. We should should set up a retiring injectors WhatsApp group and and see who joins. Um, Did we want to get onto one of these questions? I I thought it was a a good question. This is from Asha Ahmed. She's in the UK. Um, Long question, but the the bullet point was, and, and maybe you can answer this, Simone, how do you know when maybe you have emotionally decided that you're going down the and winding up your business sort of pathway obviously it's not tomorrow but even having this discussion suggests that it's at least somewhere in, in the back of your mind mm-hmm. um and so what is the sweet spot of sort of winding down while still maintaining yeah. your quality of life which is exactly what you said about the school fees yeah etc just, just before mm-hmm. smart answers i think you know just to sort of you know, further
1: not qualify what you're saying, but maybe just, you know, people get life insurance policies, people get insurance for their cars. It's not because they're expecting to have an accident, Mm -hmm. but they're preparing for something that might happen. So just because you're thinking about it now.
0: Oh, no, sorry, I didn't mean it that way. It's it's a good thing you're thinking about it, but, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe you didn't recognize it a year ago and now you do. So, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. The spot was having time with my family and freedom and downtime and peace. And, you know, when you're on holidays and you think, oh, I don't want to go back,
3: mm.
2: you know, <laughs> but then you're back and it's great. But then maybe the proportion of time and I'm not there yet. You know, I know I'm still, I still love my work. I love my patients. Um, you know, there's some that there's some days where you're more irritable than others and, and other stuff's going on in the back of your head. And, and that's when I know I need to take some days off or, mm. and I need that flexibility. So, I think it's it was the culmination of enjoying that downtime and having time to think about what how I actually like to spend my time,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: that you know there's always plenty to do when I'm on holidays. You know I'm not going to be lost. You know if I did retire, but it, it's it, it's maybe when when I'm starting to dream of more time off and more time with the family, and where I'm more irritable than I otherwise should be. I think that. Probably where I need to. St- I mean, that's why I'm starting to plan now yep. because I know I need some more time off. I can't just do this full time because it's procedural all day, every day. It's a killer. Yeah. yeah. So you know you can afford to take time off, but it's also dead time in the clinic, and nobody else pays the bills, and there's no yep. income coming in.
3: Yeah.
2: Um. But yeah I think it's you've got a duty of care for your patients as mm-hmm. well. You know you can't do this full time for decades and decades. i d- I really don't think and stay fresh unless you're you
3: have other things in your life
0: as well yeah, yeah. there's a second part to the oh, question yes. but i want to ask Simone another one in the meantime because it just popped into my head during our chat you, you had a delivery of your profilo and so oh, yeah. you know as an injector the, our industry is constantly evolving there's new things and it's exciting i still find it exciting and you've been doing it longer than me and i can tell yeah. you're excited to try a new product so Yes. Again, it's not like that boring job where you're sat behind a desk for twenty years and you're like, "Fuck this, I'm, I'm done." I, I, I kind of feel like there's all there's all these new toys to play with that it might be hard to eventually go right. I'm not doing this anymore. So, do, do you feel that way?
2: Yeah, I do. And you know, I listen to Tim Pierce's podcast as well, and he talks about. You know, a similar thing that he thought initially, if he transitioned across to um, just purely aesthetics, that he would be bored within a matter of months. But every patient's different; every face is different. They're unique challenges, and it's art. So you know, people—it's—it's it's a release for your creativity, and you keep wanting to create. You know, you keep wanting to challenge, and 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 it really is. You know, every face is a challenge, and it, and it's a piece of of art to work on, and a, a new person to get to know. So it, it's actually that that keeps me interested. Uh, the the new products um, and the and the machines that go ping, you know, eventually <laughs> you find out usually that the, the, the ping is the same. It just has a different casing, or you yeah. know, someone's got a, a better marketing agent than the other. It's not yep. much has changed over the last eighteen years, really. Yeah, but we, we've got then. There's and filler. kind of key things. Yeah, there's key things that come out that are a bit different, like Profilo or like a new device and. You know, we're never the first to get it here. So you can ask your colleagues overseas that you lecture with, you know, have yeah. you got that and what's that like? And they can, you know, trail, trial it and fail it or, or, you know, see if it's safe for their patients. And then you, can, you kind of know what to expect and whether you should get into it or not.
1: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, and the second part of uh, the question from Ashia. Ashia?
3: Ashia?
0: Asha.
1: Asha. 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 Um, what are the best ways to give patients a fabulous journey with you and what are the main factors that make a successful aesthetic business from your perspective?
2: Um, genuinely caring about your patients, yep. I think. Mm-hmm. And if, if you have a patient that you can't genuinely care about that is annoying or demanding or difficult or it just you just wish was not your patient, you have to work out a way not to treat them and, and to, to move them on to someone else that they'll have a relationship with because yep. it, it is... Um, you rely on your patients yep. to follow your advice and to have a good, re- to have a good relationship with you, because if you, you don't, then, you know, your chances of being sued. If the communication breaks down, yep. you know, it's, it's about having a, a genuine respect and, and um, wanting to protect and care for your patient's health as the number one thing, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. I got a, another question is it sort of along the line of legacy and David and I've discussed this a couple of times on the podcast. It actually came up with Neve and Stefania Roberts in a recent podcast. We were wondering what your thoughts on having or using your KOL sort of status, but stepping outside of, you know, your Galderma kind of hat, if you Mm -hmm. like, and actually forming some sort of unbranded or unbiased KOL sort of think tank where we actually advance further forwards from where we are and have you ever thought about that because I I think about you know I I
2: have because I was thinking about it listening to your podcast with um Sarah Hart and you were talking about your whatsapp group that's got a couple of thousand members in it and I was thinking how do I get into that whatsapp group maybe that's an elegant whatsapp group
0: (laughs) (laughs) definitely a thousand but yeah
2: yeah um but i th- I would love that because you know I think we're all passionate about this, mm. and you know we want to be able to educate and we can we're, we're so um, limited by what we can say and what we can do in the kind of in the forum that we do it
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, but then it's how do you fund it and how do you organize it and you know I remember me talking about trying to um, monitor the um, breast. Yeah, the breast implants and and follow up complications with that, and it was it just turned into a shit show because yeah. it was, you know, it was just like trying to herd cats. And you know, there is only, as she said, there is four hundred plastic surgeons in Australia, and and that was hard enough. Let alone with um you know, complication management from from this. But you've got to be so nice to have um kind of a pure intent group of of experts to help lead what should be happening in our view in terms of education and ethics and and particularly with regulation. You know, it's um, heartbreaking to watch what's happening in the UK and we're just marching along the same snail trail there.
3: It's, mm. um, yeah, yeah tricky. I, I
2: think it's got – I think it, it would be ideal. Yeah.
1: Okay. Feels Very good. good. Yeah. Mm. Well, how did you, How did you, I don't know, how did you find that and how did someone <laughs> some find that? Because well, these discussions are pretty are pretty new. <laughs> well,
0: before we went on air, it was funny because, like I said, we had Professor Kotafana on just before and, of course, that's quite a technical injecting one and, and I I sort of feel like, in a way, David gets sidelined. But these ones are great because then David <laughs> yeah. is the star of the show and I just sort of chip in. So it's good. I, I, did you get any value from that?
2: Yeah, definitely. You know, it's, it's um I've got a little to-do list in yep. my head that I need to now hop off and and write my to-do, and I think it it's inspired me that it it doesn't have to be a rush process and that I can make small steps now that'll that'll have big effect later, mm-hmm. and it w- might not be as scary as I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And yeah. honestly, you know, I, I I truly mean it when I think that my philosophy of injecting, but also my business model is, has been similar to yours, Simone. So it's, just, I'm learning, it's yeah. useful for me. Yeah, well that's so, what yeah. the podcast is all about, you know, it was just. But
1: you know, it yeah. makes me
2: think I had such a great clinical mentor, I need a business mentor now, so. His David Segal. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. <laughs>
0: yeah. When he's, when you he's selling
1: up Segal services? I think I might be your first, your first
2: customer. Yeah, David.
0: I don't
1: know. Oh, I'm looking yeah. to probably get started in October. But um, Oh, there
0: you go. Official announcement. But, wow. but
1: yeah, but I'm just um, as you guys are selective with who you treat, I just, you know. I, think well, so I mean, that, like, yeah.
0: obviously, it's yeah. a bit of a
1: loose plan. See so if but we what,
2: make the grade. Yeah. yeah, like, like, no, just, yeah.
0: How, how do you anticipate it working? <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: That's a good question. I mean, just start off, start off small, really. Just, you know, identifying people that, you know, might be struggling or, you know, whether it be like HR. Because, I mean, I, I guess for me, like, I've just made so many bloody mistakes, mm. um, you know, and some of them have cost me a lot of money and and sort of egg on your face and all these sorts of things. And, and for me, it's like, if I can help someone avoid that from learning from the shit that I've done wrong, then, that, then that's great. So, I mean, I'm pretty, pretty familiar with like most, I'm very familiar with this industry, and it's quite nuanced. I mean, it's not like a business consultant, I think, could just walk in off the street who knows nothing about this industry and be able to provide advice, be able to walk in your shoes, understand the challenges that you face, particularly from a clinical perspective. Um, so I think I do have a fairly unique perspective in that regard. So I think it's just starting off small, identifying people who um, who, I, who I enjoy communicating with and are sensible and have got challenges that they'd like to overcome and just work workshopping it with them, just sharing my experiences um, advice that I can offer, putting them in touch with people that potentially can offer them skills um, and services that perhaps I can't, so whether it be great lawyers or accountants or, or people that have got different insights to me. Again, it's sort of like, well, you've built a community for injectors, you know, let's, let's build a community for for business people within inside this industry so that we can all, you know, mm-hmm. earn the money that we think we should earn, that we've got um, a legacy to leave behind or we've got an asset to sell at the end of the day or avoid issues. I mean, one of the things I've noticed is that, you know, most doctors are pretty terrible at compliance i've worked i've worked with and i don't you know some people might be getting offended by that but i mean i've had nurses working in my clinics and always the ones that were sloppy with their paperwork or generally the doctors so mm. even just looking at it from a medical compliance perspective like are your clinical notes on point do you have the right information mm. in there you yeah. know even the, the way you're running your, your day-to-day are you leaving enough time because there are just things mm. that i think you know no one really Sort of becomes aware of all the things that can go wrong until they've actually gone wrong. Yeah. So if I can help someone go, hey, I've, this has happened to me before, and this is what happened. Like, let's not go down that path. Let's try and let's nip this in the bud now and get ahead of it. So, yeah, I'm just mm. excited to sort of meet new people and, and sort of work in all in, in any sorts of you know business related um, topics within this industry.
0: I reckon you're going to have about forty thousand phone calls soon. <laughs> so congratulations, oh, you're going to be very rich.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, Simone, (laughs) thank you so much for sharing and and, and thank you for being open with us as well about, you know, everything, Um, but uh, I think you're doing great and you've still got plenty of time to to get that exit plan in place.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. No worries. Really appreciate it. Thank Thank you
0: very much. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Using the link in our Instagram profile, you can easily email us, text us, apply to be a guest on the show, follow our personal accounts on Instagram, and even show your love and support us on Patreon.